Hi everyone, today is February 27th, 2015. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Anthony Grace, who is the Distinguished Professor of Neuroscience and Professor of Psychiatry and Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, his work in the 70s and 80s defined much of what we know about the firing patterns and inputs to midbrain dopamine neurons. In um, recent years, his lab has been defining the biological bases of psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia and depression by exploring uh, dopamine network dysregulation in animal models. Hi, Tony. Hi. Uh, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Matt Wanat. Hello. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And I'm your host, as usual, Salma Qureshi. Tony, you're uh, building a comprehensive picture of the potential inputs that drive dopamine network hyper and hypo responsivity in schizophrenia and depression. And before you take us through some of those ideas, can you first talk about the importance of firing patterns of, of individual dopamine neurons and how this translates to the network level when thinking about um, the phenotype of a psychiatric disorder? Um, because those are sort of two things that you've worked on a lot, and I, I, you know, there's not an obvious link when you think about network level and individual neuron firing patterns. So can you talk us through some of that? Sure. Um, when I first started doing recordings from dopaminergic neurons as a graduate student, uh, I was looking at some of the effects of antipsychotic drugs, and it, a few things really stood out. One is whenever you gave the antipsychotic drugs, the neurons would start to fire in what we call the burst firing pattern. So in a baseline state, they'll be firing in a slow pop, pop, pop type of firing pattern. But when they're driven, they start show, showing these bursts, like brr, brr. And uh, in addition, whenever we were doing these recordings, it normally when you were making electrode tracks through the, the brain of an anesthetized rat, you would find maybe one cell every electrode track. But after we gave these antipsychotic drugs, we were finding way more cells per electrode track. And we're thinking that this is something really unique about this system, that these neurons can change their pattern of firing. And not only that, but they can also change the number firing. And what we've discovered over the years is that these are things that are regulated by different pathways and probably have different functional implications. So studies by Wolfram Schultz and others have shown that whenever uh, you're recording from dopamine, neur dopamine neurons in a awake behaving animal, that whenever the animal is exposed to a behaviorally salient or behaviorally relevant stimuli, dopamine neurons fire in these bursts of action potentials. So they're kind of the fast phasic output of the dopamine system. And they're the thing that's probably related most to what they do behaviorally whenever they signal an event. But the, the change in the number of neurons firing is kind of a unique property that we quantified by making electrode tracks in a very preset pattern and counting the number of neurons firing. And what we found is this, that there are specific pathways that control whether a neuron burst fires or controls how many neurons are firing. Now, what's the relevance of the number of neurons firing? Well, as I mentioned, burst firing is the thing that really determines uh, the behaviorally relevant output. But a neuron can't burst fire unless it's already firing. If a neuron's hyperpolarized, there's a magnesium block of the NMDA channel, NMDA driving burst firing. So when NMDA input goes onto these cells, nothing happens. But if the cell's depolarized, 
this magnesium block of the NMDA channel is relieved and it starts to fire, which means the more neurons that are firing, the more neurons that can burst fire. So whenever you have a behaviorally relevant stimulus that comes in, if there are a lot more neurons firing, you get a much bigger signal. Now, as far as what controls the number of neurons firing, this seems to be controlled by a pathway that originates in the ventral hippocampus. And when that area is active, you get more neurons firing. Now, this is interesting because what the ventral hippocampus is involved in are things related to context or your ability to adjust your behavioral response depending on settings, environment, past experience, and things like that. So the more charged the context, the more neurons are firing. The more neurons that are firing, the bigger dopamine signal you're going to get when they're exposed to a stimulus. And this is something you want to regulate. You don't want to always be on edge, ready to respond to everything that comes along, no matter what. You'll burn yourself out. So when you're in a very benign context, there aren't a lot of neurons firing. You hear a stimulus, a few neurons burst fire. You can act leisurely to that stimulus. But if you're in a condition where there's a lot of threat or a lot of potential for reward or a lot of excitement, you want to be very vigilant. You have a lot of neurons firing, and now when you see this event, you get a big dopamine release, and you can immediately orient and respond to this stimulus while you're in that charged environment. So in, in pathological states, like in schizophrenia, when you use words like hyper-responsive network, that really does that have to do with the number of neurons being recruited, or are we talking about more sort of are, are we talking about different patterns of bursting being invoked? Or I mean, are, is is hype? What is hyper responsivity? And can you actually define that in terms of schizophrenia? What are we talking about when we talk about a hyper responsive network in schizophrenia? So, um, a number of studies have uh, suggested that the dopamine system has a big involvement in schizophrenia. All antipsychotic drugs that are effective at Treating schizophrenia are dopamine blockers. Um, anything that increases dopamine release, like amphetamine or L-dopa, can mimic schizophrenia in normals or can make the schizophrenia symptoms worse in schizophrenia patients. And studies have shown that you get much more dopamine release to a dose of amphetamine in schizophrenia patients than you do in normals, as well as worsening the symptoms. But if you just look at the basal state of the dopamine system, it really doesn't seem to be that different. So although the dopamine system isn't itself overactive, it seems to be over-responsive. Now, a number of studies have looked at just what causes this over-responsivity. One thing that we focused on, again, is the hippocampus. Um, what we've, what's been shown in human imaging studies looking at, at metabolic indices is that the limbic part of the hippocampus is hyperactive especially in, in the conditions of psychosis. It's related to the hyperdopaminergic state. In our studies, what we find is that the ventral hippocampus controls the number of neurons firing and controls this heightened responsivity. The other thing that clinical studies have shown, studies by Howes and McGuire, is that there's an increase in fluoridopa uptake in the striatum in schizophrenia. Fluoridopa labeling number of active terminals which corresponds to our increase in the number of neurons firing. So basically, in schizophrenics, the hippocampus doesn't have the ability to up and down regulate the dopamine system. It's already stuck at a maximum. 
which means the dopamine system is already in a maximally responsive state, and any stimulus that comes in causes way too much dopamine release. Now, what's the consequence? Well, the consequence is the schizophrenics can't filter what's important from what's not important, when they should be vigilant and when they can't, they shouldn't be vigilant, because that system's broken. And instead, the dope, the overactive hippocampus is overdriving dopamine system responsivity. So any stimulus that comes in causes way too much dopamine release. So it's not that the system is too active. It's just too responsive. And that's what we need to treat in order to treat schizophrenia. Tony, in the lateral, you know, substantia nigra partis compacta, the dopamine neurons have some role in movement. I guess nobody knows exactly what it is, but the uh, movements don't work well without them. So is that... Are those dopamine neurons also being controlled by ventral palatal inputs? And I mean, is the, does, the, does the argument like extend all the way over the substantial argument? And if so, is there some kind of motor, you know, hyperactivity or something like that that goes with schizophrenia? Um, not so much with schizophrenia, but um, we think that in the substantial nigra, you sort of have the uh, extrapyramidal component. So now you have the dorsal striatum working through the globus pallidus and the globus pallidus controlling the substantia nigra and probably controlling the number of neurons firing. Because we know that if you, you activate the striatum or block dopamine in the, in the dorsal striatum, you do get an increase in the number of dopaminergic neurons firing in the substantia nigra. Now, interestingly, there are two classes of antipsychotic drugs, the so-called first-generation drugs and the second-generation drugs. The second-generation drugs just work on the limbic system and just treat schizophrenia. The first-generation drugs treat schizophrenia in the limbic system, but they also have motor side effects. And these drugs also activate the substantia nigra. So when that area is overactive is where you start to get a lot of the dopamine overactive types of pathologies, like acute dyskinesias, these automatic movements that people can't control. And when it's, of course, underactive, then you get Parkinsonian So I'm thinking about the an analogy, because dyskinesia is a sort of, um, I don't know, uh, habitual movement that gets released inappropriately, mm-hmm. and some of the positive symptoms of schizophrenia seem like thoughts that get released inappropriately. Are you willing to to go there with that kind of an analogy, or do you think that's... No, I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate statement, that what you have is the, the inability to filter or to selectively activate certain processes. So now you can't just make a simple movement. You have all of these extra movements that are occurring in the same way that you can't focus your thoughts because all the thoughts are coming in at you at once. I mean, it's interesting because the the word schizophrenia that's always been misinterpreted in the popular media as you know two minds really isn't meant that way. It's meant that there's a division of thought processes, that, that thoughts are divided in such a way that they can't be focused. And that's sort of where the term schizophrenia came from. And that's a pretty accurate description of what the patients are feeling, that their thoughts are being pulled in all different directions with an inability to really focus them. Just like whenever the motor system is overactive, You've got movements that are occurring in ways that aren't going to get you to where you want to be motorically because of all these extra movements that are occurring. 
So how did the second generation drugs selectively go after the limbic component of the basal ganglia instead of the motor component? What's the uh, pharmacological secret sauce that makes that happen? There's a lot of ideas about it. <clears throat> and the idea isn't <clears throat> so much that it's selective for the limbic system as that it's protective of the extrapyramidal system. So one thing that you see in the second generation drugs are anticholinergic properties. And of course, one way you treat motor side effects is with anticholinergics. And the other is the uh, uh, serotonin 5-HT2A antagonist properties. And it's thought that, that those properties actually protect the motor system. And in fact, there have been um, adjunct treatments with antipsychotic drugs that manipulate the serotonin system that allow you to give higher doses of antipsychotic drugs without getting side effects to the same degree. And it's thought that this extra effect on the serotonin system and potentially the cholinergic system are really really what's protecting the extrapyramidal system from the effects of these drugs. So there's a, a preferential innervation of serotonergic towards lateral dopamine system, towards compacta versus VTA then? It probably has to do with more the innervation of the striatum itself and the dorsal ventral gradient you have in the serotonergic right. intervention, innervation. So I was going to go back to the, your idea about um, um, the dopaminergic neurons being in a hyperpolarized state and that they become more responsive when the, when the inhibition is removed. Um, couldn't it also happen? So what prevents these cells that are now uh, being bombarded by excitatory inputs from going into depolarization block? You mean in, in a normal state? In a normal state or even in a state where ventral palatal inhibition is removed? Well, I think you have a lot of compensatory processes available. Uh, for one, you have um, dopamine autoreceptors. So when dopamine neurons fire not only do they release dopamine onto their targets, they also release dopamine onto themselves. And when they release dopamine onto themselves, it can kind of self-limit how active the neurons are. Uh, whenever you start to give, uh, and this sort of helps to control the system and control the excitability, you also have dopamine that has the ability to uh, presynaptically release GABA from GABA terminals uh, locally. So the dopamine acting locally has the ability to downmodulate the system. The problem is, is when you start introducing antipsychotic drugs to the system, then you run into a problem because you start to short-circuit all of those feedback systems. You block the autoreceptors. You block the effects of dopamine on GABA release. And at the same time, when the striatum doesn't see as much dopamine, it starts sending excitatory feedback saying, you know, let's get more dopamine up here. It makes the cells fire faster. And what we showed is if you give a normal animal these first-generation antipsychotic drugs, you actually push the dopaminergic neurons into depolarization block. Um, the thing is, is what we find in animals is that it takes three weeks, four weeks of treatment to get this depolarization block. But in patients, you get or you get therapeutic actions within days. It may take a few weeks for the Parkinsonian signs to develop. But the antipsychotic effects start to happen within the first few days of treatment. Now, interestingly, when we go to our animal model, where we have way more dopaminergic neurons firing, 
you've already lost part of the compensatory process because there are already all these neurons firing. Now when you give the antipsychotic drugs, you can push them into depolarization block right away. So in the schizophrenia patient, the dopamine system is already overactive, and as a consequence, the antipsychotic drugs have much greater efficacy. And in fact, when you look clinically, you find that the more floridly psychotic the person is, and supposedly the more activated the dopamine system is, the more rapid they respond to antipsychotic drugs. So then would there be a ceiling effect on on the psychotic symptoms? So uh, they have a self-breaking mechanism no matter how much you try to release them from inhibition. Uh, does schizophrenia reach some kind of symptoms, just reach some kind of plateau in which they don't develop anymore after that? Well, I mean, the, certainly neurophysiologically they're going to reach a plateau. Yeah. But there's you know, also the psychological component to this you know, because they're, they're being bombarded with stimuli and how they react to that stimuli is going to change over time. Uh, schizophrenics always say one of the things that's so disturbing about the disease uh, is the fact that it keeps changing on them. And once they get used to a set of symptoms, all of a sudden, other sets of symptoms start to arise because these modulatory pathways are so important for so many different functions. And when you start screwing them up, you can start to get all these other types of symptoms emerging. Subsequent screw-ups. <laughs> yeah. So which, which of the cells, uh, are, is there anything special about the cells that manage to keep firing even when... In, normal ventral pallidum inhibition. So you, you, you always say that about 50% are not firing, 50% are firing. Uh, is that just an accident that some of them are firing and some of them are not firing? Or are they special cells? Do they project to a special place? Do they have a certain um, molecular signature or, or anatomical profile? We haven't really looked to see um, what... Uh, whether they have different projection sites. The fact that it happens to so many of the neurons suggests the majority of them, based on the region where we're recording, are projecting the ventral strate of nucleus accumbens area. <clears throat> so in that case, there are probably a lot that are firing and at least half that aren't firing. What makes them special? I mean, it's not really clear because we haven't been able to individually label neurons and do whatever molecular studies that are needed. I think that, that basically what you have are neurons that have a, a sliding scale of excitability. Some of them are going to be more excitable. Maybe they're, they're, they're smaller in size. Maybe they have a higher input resistance. But something where the, you know, the slow depolarization that drives them continues to be effective. Um, and others that are more easily inhibited. Maybe there are more GABA synapses on them. Maybe the neuron's uh, input resistance causes them to be less excitable so that you have a, a scale of neurons from the ones that are uh, taken off a lot to be inhibited to ones that uh, are inhibited very easily. I mean, just like any population of neurons. So when you record from them, they're not all firing at exactly 4.5 hertz. You have a distribution, and, and that distribution is based on the level of excite baseline excitability of these neurons. And that you can push one direction or the other. Even in vitro, where the neurons don't have inputs, you still get a range of firing. So there's a difference in the basal ex excitation of these neurons. And I think that that distribution 
is sort of what helps the system to be able to adjust depending on contingencies. Uh, Rodolfo Linas always had this great quote. He said, every neuron has a point of view. <laughs> um, and, and it does, because they respond differently to different inputs. If all neurons did exactly the same thing, we wouldn't need all the neurons that we do. But the fact that they can all have different responses depending on their intrinsic properties gives you the rich variety of, of patterns and activity that we see. So I was interested about the, and I think one of the most fascinating aspects about schizophrenia is the fact that it is not present in adolescence, but then there seems to be a trigger. And I was just wondering if you could sort of comment on what is sort of known clinically of, do the symptoms sort of slowly come on, or is it almost like a step function, and sort of what electrophysiologically is going on? And sort of another sort of side note was you commented on, I think, diazepam, um, as being a potential therapeutic agent for individuals that are at high risk. And so is there any way that we could, you know, you sort of prevent the individual from developing the symptoms within this sort of critical window? Is the person then, you know, are they saved from being, you know, developing schizophrenia later on in life? Like, is there sort of a, a critical window therapeutically that really we should be talking about and focusing to sort of prevent then the development of these symptoms as opposed to a lot of the treatments now, which are sort of after the fact? Um, well, let's first talk a little bit about the clinical course of schizophrenia. Um, in the pre-morbid state, before the people have uh, full diagnosable schizophrenia, uh, you have a wide range of different types of cases. Uh, a large number of them show... A, uh, cognitive difficulties and some of the negative symptoms, uh, things like social withdrawal, very early on. The problem is, is these are all retrospective studies. You know, you get somebody who's schizophrenic, and then you try to figure out, um, okay, what were they like when they were young? And some people might say, well, they were kind of odd. Um, but others, you know, are people that are in medical school. You know, they're obviously highly accomplished. Uh, before they get full-blown schizophrenia, many of them show what are called attenuated psychotic signs, which are um, um, magical thinking, um, hearing uh, uh, voices in a way that isn't necessarily disturbing. But then they undergo what's called the first psychotic break. And the first psychotic break is late adolescence, early adulthood, like 17, 18, 19, 20. It's actually a little later in females than it is in males. Uh, at that point is when they get the florid psychotic signs. They're, they're hearing voices. Their thoughts are disorganized. They can't construct sentences. Um, the, they're um, very stressed, hyperreactive, um, and a big cognitive decline uh, in, in cognitive abilities that are occurring with this first psychotic break. Um, now, as far as what happens as an antecedent to that, there were some studies that were done by Eve Johnstone and also by Robin Murray, where what they were looking at are children that were at risk for schizophrenia based on um, family history. So they may have a parent with schizophrenia or a sibling with schizophrenia. And what she did is she tested them through a number of psychometric tests and then followed them to see who transition to schizophrenia and who didn't. And what she found are the, the children that showed hyper-responsiveness to stress tended to be the ones that converted to schizophrenia. Now, now this is really interesting because of, of what the impacts of stress are. 
The frontal cortex is an area that's really involved in controlling stress responses. There's some evidence that some frontal cortical functions might be disrupted in patients before schizophrenia comes about because of the social problems uh, that they have that are frontal cortically uh, driven. And also because the frontal cortex is involved in controlling stress. Under those conditions, the stress, if it's uncontrolled, can have deleterious consequences. There are a number of studies that have been done uh, by investigators that have looked at the effects of stress on, um, um, on the hippocampus. Studies by Bruce McEwen and others have shown that uh, maintained stressors tends to damage the hippocampus. And it damages the hippocampus um, primarily by interfering with these parvalbumin interneurons. Francine Benny's did studies where she hyperactivated the amygdala, actually drove it into seizures, and amygdala being an area that's involved in stress and one thing she saw was a loss of parvalbumin interneurons. And one thing you see in schizophrenia patients is this loss of parvalbumin interneurons. Now, when we look at our animal model of schizophrenia, what we find is the dopamine system isn't hyper-responsive from birth. It only gets its hyper-responsivity later in life, about the time that you start seeing this disruption in schizophrenia patients. Um, and what we find is that these animals even around puberty, are hyper-responsive to stress and are way more anxious than normal animals. And we think that this anxiety is what overdrives the hippocampus, leads to loss of parvalbumin interneurons, and starts this whole cascade of events. Now, if that's true, what would it suggest is that stressors around that period can have a big impact on whether someone gets schizophrenia. And there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, uh, Robin Murray had shown that the number of times a family moves when the child's between the ages, I think, of 11 and 15, is a, a big risk factor for schizophrenia because every time they move, the child has to re-engage all of their um, social contacts. They've got to break into already established social orders, which is very stressful. Um, Jamaicans that move to Great Britain, especially in this early period, have a 7 to 10 times higher incidence of schizophrenia, again, because it's a minority moving into an established social order. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at places that have very stable family bonds, like, for example, the, the barriers around Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, the incidence of schizophrenia is significantly less there than in the general population. And it's thought to be because the family structure and family bonds are so good that it mitigates the effects of stress and you don't get as much transition to schizophrenia. Now, in our animal models that we see that are hyper-responsive to stressors, what we did is we started treating them with diazepam, a Valium, an anti-anxiety agent. But... Uh, right around the time of puberty, for only about 10 days, and waited for the animals to reach adulthood. And we, when we looked at them, dopamine firing is normal, amphetamine response is normal. We seem to have prevented them from showing this schizophrenia. Now, I don't think we should go out and start you know, treating children with Valium. Um, but what we can do is to, is to take this to heart. We could uh, look at people that may be at risk for schizophrenia, test their stress responses, 
And those that are hyper-responsive to the stress, treat the stress. Get them uh, into psychosocial programs. Get them into programs that can teach them how to mitigate the effects of stress. Something that Pat McGorry has been doing in Australia in, in his um, uh, in a number of clinics where they get children that are at risk and start bringing them into these uh, highly social supportive environments and with one of the hopeful consequences, mitigating the effects of stress and preventing these transitions to schizophrenia. So you can take your mice, so when you evaluate your mice after the diazepam treatment, you find that they're no longer in adulthood hyper-responsive hyper to stress and you can't push them to any sort of equivalent of a psychotic break, not that, you, I mean, I don't know what you'd call it for the animal. Yeah, the, their stress responses are normal uh, in the adult, um, and the dopamine system is normal, the response to amphetamine is normal. But yet they still so, show a lot of those uh, anatomical signs, like the, the decreased neuropil. I mean, when you look at these brains, do they look like schizophrenic brains still, or it's all completely halted in its tracks? We're looking at that now, so I can't I can't say for sure whether that happened. One of the things we want to look at is whether we prevented the parvalbumin neuron loss, or whether we just mitigated the effects of it, and that's something that we hope to find uh, with some of our later studies. But presumably, people people who are at risk for schizophrenia pass successfully through this age at which psychotic breaks happen are then protected after that. Isn't that true, or is that wrong? No, the, the um, generally you see schizophrenia, as I mentioned, um, eighteen to twenty-one in males, um, twenty-two to twenty-six in females. Um, so if you're thirty-five years old and you're not schizophrenic, you're probably not going to be schizophrenic. Yeah, unless you've undergone some extreme traumatic incidents. You know, there there's sporadic schizophrenia. Um, but in most cases, you get it at the earlier ages. And once you get past a certain age, the chances of getting it are very small, with one exception. Um, if you look at the incidence of schizophrenia, <coughs> overall, it's about the same between men and women. Um, but in this you know, late teens or, uh, to mid-20s, there are less women that have schizophrenia than men. But they catch up at menopause. Oh, really? There's another so, opportunity. Yeah. So it's thought that estrogen protects women so that they get schizophrenia later and probably don't show as bad signs because they're further along you know, in, in social development. Um, but some, that it protects them from schizophrenia all the way up to menopause. And then as soon as they lose the estrogen, that's the missing population that has schizophrenia. So is then, you know, sex hormones, is that then, you know, another trigger that people have sort of potentially looked at as far as, you know, knowing that those are sort of changing during uh, pubescence? And, yeah, is that sort of a critical factor in some ways? Is that also something that could be targeted from therapeutic, you know, interventions? Um, it's difficult to say because when uh, when they're having their first break, you know, late, 20, late teens, early 20s, all those hormonal changes are long in the past. Um, whether that's playing a role in some of these initial stress-related changes hasn't really been looked at, but it's certainly a, an interesting idea. Is anybody prescribing Valium? I mean, is there a clinical trial on this? I mean, your data speaks to there should be a study going on. Is there any sort of active clinical study looking at the effect of Valium in... Uh, you have a better drop. I'm going to take my kids. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it's not that I know of. And, you know, it's one of these things that you don't want to give it to everybody. But, you know, find the people that are hyper-responsive to distress and treat the stress. And you don't have to do it with Valium. We did it because it was a uh, easy, direct way to treat rats. But you don't have to use that in humans. There are other types of interventions you can use. Um, I would love to see clinical trials done on that. But it's going to be an expensive clinical trial because you're talking about conversion rates of a few percent. Um, you know, even even people with a genetic risk, you know, uh, with a, a parent that has schizophrenia, the conversion rate's only going to be about 15 to 20 percent. So you're going to have to either treat a lot of people, but in any way you're going to have to follow a lot of people over 10, 15, 20 years to see which transitions and which don't. And that does, that's not amenable for a five-year NIH grant. <laughs> so are we going to get a chance to talk about depression? Um, because, yeah, let's talk about depression. Because I was, I was just, when you were talking about uh, hormonal influence, I was thinking about postpartum depression immediately. And mm-hmm. Is there some connection like that? You have a, a whole other set of brain regions that work basically on the same final common pathway for depression and I imagine you have yeah well I mean depression of course it affects more the the medial dopaminergic neurons project to the ventral medial reward related striatum um, and depression is interesting because of course it's it's twice as common in women as it is in men and you have this huge incidence during postpartum depression where hormonal levels that have been elevated and sort of keep you, you happy even though you're pregnant when in all other instances you should really be not happy. <laughs> but then when all of those hormones drop, there's this high incidence of postpartum depression. Uh, well, um, you should be happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, and it's, it's not clear just why uh, this impacts the system the way that it does. And it, it's, it may be, again, the way that um, estrogen helps to mitigate some of the effects of stress. I mean, stress plays a, a, a big role in depression. All animal models of depression are based on different types of stressors. Um, we know that stress uh, can push people into depression. Um, bereavement looks very similar to clinical depression, except that it's time-limited. You know, bereavement lasts from a loss of a, a, a loved one can last weeks or months, but then it's over whereas clinical depression continues and continues in a cyclic fashion. Um, so exactly how that works isn't clear. Interestingly, you know, George Coop came up with this idea a number of years ago talking about uh, drug abuse, this uh, opponent process idea, that you take a drug like amphetamine or cocaine. It releases a lot of dopamine, gets you really high for a short period of time. But then when you stop taking it, you get really depressed for a much longer period of time. And he came up with the idea that whatever caused the high triggers the much longer-lasting low. And he even came up with the idea that maybe the amygdala is involved. And in fact, what we find is is that's exactly what's happening in these rats. If we put them through uh, what's called a chronic mild stress procedure, where, where it's not extreme stress, it's just little irritating things that are done on an unpredictable basis. It's like always having a bad day every day. You know, one day their bedding's wet, the next day the cage is tilted, the next day the lights are left on, um, and it's, you know, repeated randomly over a period of weeks, 
and they start to show all of these depressed signs. They, they show decreased motivation, decreased uh, uh, desire to work for rewards, uh, things that you see in depressed patients. Um, when we look at the dopamine system, what we find is that the reward-related dopamine system is tremendously depressed. Half the neurons are active. And this is driven by the amygdala that seems to be driven by this area of the prefrontal cortex called the subgenual cingulate. Now, the subgenual cingulate and the amygdala are interesting because Helen Mayberg has shown that the subgenual cingulate is hyperactive in depression and all effective antidepressant treatments normalize activity in that area. And Mary Phillips and others have shown that the amygdala is hyper-responsive to negative stimuli. So now you have this dopamine depression pathway through the subgenual cingulate, amygdala, ventral pallidum, dopaminergic system that seems to make the system less responsive to things that may normally be rewarding and sort of leads to this anhedonic state. So, you know, whenever you have these stressors, especially that are occurring later in life, um, that are not necessarily extreme, but maintained, then it seems to push the system in a different direction, in a way that the system can't respond to reward-related stimuli. Things that are sort of interested in is there's a number of uh, models of schizophrenia that in rodent systems, and one of them is you know the neonatal neonatal ventral hippocampal lesion, which is pretty much doing the opposite of what you find in the MAM model. And could you comment on sort of you know the benefit and drawbacks of like the different model systems? Has the field sort of converged to sort of you know one or a couple you know models that sort of you know are better sort of translationally? Um, yeah. So, I mean, the ventral hippocampal lesion model I'll talk about first because at first blush, you might think, well, this is just the opposite, but it's not. Um, the ventral hippocamp neonatal ventral hippocampal lesion model is dependent on making a lesion in the ventral hippocampus early in life, but the lesion can't be very extensive. In fact, um, Neil Swerdlow had this paper out called Less is More. And what he found is with small lesions, you get something that looks like schizophrenia, but the bigger the lesion, the smaller the pathology. Um, now, Patricio O'Donnell uh, has done work in his own lab that I've been trying to get him to publish for years, <laughs> that what he did is to go in and record from the neurons that are left. And the neurons that are left are firing like crazy. Mm -hmm. So it's a similar type of thing. You're, le you're, you're disrupting enough of the circuit to make it hyperactive. And that hyperactivity is what's driving the dopamine system. Um, and that goes along with the clinical studies of hyperactivity in the hippocampus. Uh, now, there are other models. Um, one of the other really attractive models is the immune activation model. So there have been studies that have looked at um, influenza infections in pregnant women. And what they find are women who had severe influenza infections during the second trimester had a higher incidence of schizophrenic births. Now, it's not a huge incidence. If you, if you get the flu in your second trimester, you don't want to run out and get an abortion. It's, it's, it's a tiny percentage, but it's statistically significant. Um, and what people have done is they've, they've looked at an immune activation by using uh, interleukin, which mimics a lot of the uh, uh, immune activation symptoms. And what they find is when they do it, uh, in this case a little bit earlier on in development, 
when they look at adult animals, they get things that look a lot like schizophrenia. Um, and, of course, there are other types of, of, of models, uh, peripubral stress models. The thing that's fascinating are all of these, and, and there's also a great series of studies by Kim Doe in Switzerland showing that uh, increased oxidative stress can lead to schizophrenia symptoms. The thing that all of these have in common is they all lead to parvalbumin interneuron loss and hippocampal hyperactivity. And this goes along with what we think about schizophrenia. In schizophrenia patients, we see this hippocampal hyperactivity, dopamine hyperresponsivity. But for the longest time, people think that it's a, a common pathophysiology with multiple etiologies. In other words, there are a lot of causative factors that lead to the same consequence. And I think what we have is this sensitive amygdala hippocampal parvalbumin stress system that it doesn't make any difference whether this is activated because the frontal cortex isn't controlling stress, whether someone's in a highly stressed environment, whether you're getting um, oxidative stress, uh, whether there are other types of factors that are interfering with hippocampal function. But all of these things have the common consequence of parvalbumin interneuron loss, hippocampal hyperactivity, and overdrive of the dopamine system. So the fact that we have these multiple models goes along with multiple etiologies, common pathophysiology. So they all have a preclinical phase where you don't see any, any symptomology, and they all show hyperresponsivity. I mean, they, they all have the same phenotype as well. They haven't really examined the, the stress hyperresponsivity. That that hasn't sort of been fractionated out. Um, that's morbid people that are that are at genetic risk. Um, and the other animal models haven't really looked at whether there's a change in stress responsivity around that period. Um, but the fact that they all have this delayed pathology in common suggests that they're all sort of working through the same type of circuits. Thanks for joining us today. This was great. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks.